Money FM 89.3, best of the breakfast huddle. Why it matters on Money FM 89.3. Money FM 89.3. Good morning. It's the Breakfast Huddle. Elliot Danker, Bharti Jagdish and Ryan Huang with you. So you would have seen this front page of the newspapers, how you've got these 960 flat units in Rocho that are going to be launched under the PLH model. I, I, I do wonder, though, if hypothetically, if you had a flat in Rocho, if you stayed that close to town, what would your lifestyle be like? You know, I have uh, observed some of my friends and how they live because they live in that area. And I tell you, it's really nice. There are great places nearby, right? Eateries, all sorts of coffee places and all that. They do a lot of meetings there. Now that everyone's working remotely, it really helps to be close to that sort of uh, an area. It's a totally different lifestyle, I would say. Mm. And I do wonder, you know, because you, I've stayed in in the town area before, but I, I do wonder, in order to have this sort of prime location, most of the time people forego buying an HDB and they just use the money renting. Mm, what are your mm. thoughts on this? Renting versus buying thing? Well, I have to say, Elliot, over the years I have thought about it. Which is better, right? To rent or to buy? In which, you know, in which instance would I save more money? Which is more expensive? And I've seen lots of analysts come out to say, some of them have done the calculations. They'll always say, you know what? If we're talking in real time, you are actually spending less when you rent. Uh, but really? at the end of it all, you are left with nothing. So, you know, like I look back, right, on my time in Singapore, growing up here, being born here, growing up here, listening to my parents talk about property, listening to their friends talk about property. And as I, as I grew up, my friends talk about property and how to deal with it and how to make the most of it, right? A lot of people are very into that ownership thing. Like, you know, I want something tangible at the end of paying for my mortgage. With rent, you don't get that. And looking back at how my parents benefited from owning a home and then selling it and making a huge profit from it, I sometimes think maybe that is the way to go. But let's face it, times are different now, right? At that point, they had bought their flats for very little money and there had been a huge appreciation. But today, the conditions are totally different and we have a lot of HDB flats whose leases are running down as well so completely different landscape I would say it needs a completely different mindset does it make sense or not uh, let's find out a little bit more from Kusui Young Chief Investment Officer for Casa Singapore Sui Young good morning how are you good morning just about waking uh, up <laughs> oh, good morning, sir. We were just sort of talking about the differences between renting and buying, mindsets involved, what you leave behind, got kids or no kids. Is renting necessary, necessarily more expensive when you compare it to buying a home? I mean, which makes more sense? Typical Singaporean would say, just use your HDB, uh, not your, your CPF. Uh. It's not like you can take out your CPF. Uh. Yes, that has been the argument for the longest time. But most people don't count all the costs when they are buying because they are thinking that there is this element of capital gain. So if you were to count the cost of ownership purely based on the utility value of a property, then you tote up your property tax, your maintenance expenses, everything else that is included in owning that flat, including your stamp duties. Then one more item that is always forgotten is that if you applied your CPF for the payment, 
you are in fact losing the 2.5% that CPF would be paying you every year and compounding. Mm, mm. So once you add all these cost items together, it actually works out to be about the same as if you were to pay rent. And paying rent, people give the argument that when you're paying rent, you're helping the owner to pay down his mortgage. That's not true. Owner also takes care of the maintenance and service charges. The owner takes care of repairs if something goes wrong, say the, the fridge mm. or some equipment that is included in the lease is broken. The owner has to replace them. So when you work out the numbers strictly, rental and ownership, they cost about the same. But that's the thing. If they cost about the same, and if I look long term, at least at the end of ownership, after I've paid off my mortgage or at any point, I can choose to sell the house and reap benefits and profits from that too. So how do you balance that with the fact that, you know, if we're looking at now, you know, it is cheaper or about the same? Then I would say, let's look long term. And 30 years from today, when you hit 65, assuming you're 35 years old today, then how much is that pot of money that is left over in your CPF for your retirement use. Mm. So the guys who own it then use up their CPF, they have got a much smaller pot for their retirement needs. The guys who are renting today, they are using cash, so they have got less cash savings, but their CPF savings is at the max. And so it compounds, and 30 years later, you might be half a million to a million dollar better off. As well, mm. when you are buying, you are also paying the bank interest. And of course, in the last 10 years, interest rates are very low. So it, it makes the case very easy for the pro buyers to say ownership is inexpensive. But uh, when I bought my first home in 97, 98, interest rates were as high as 5% for home loans. So most people have forgotten that part. You are also letting the bank earn money when you are owning a property. Worse still, you are losing your opportunity cost of the 2.5% in CPF and you are paying down the bank's 2% interest. So all, overall, you are losing 45 maybe. Let's, let's pretend, Suyong, that we are, we're very young, started working a couple of years, planning, like doing a bit of life planning, want to get married, young couple, that type of thing, right? It's been a while. Yep. And you are thinking now, okay, do I, is it better for me to own an HDB flat or maybe I want to stay in a private home, I can use facilities. I mean, what's the best approach to take here? Renting is not cheap, but renting does give you the option of enjoying that sort of private premises and you can move around Singapore every, every two years, every time your lease is up. You're correct. And it is not that you want to move every two years, but on average, families move between six to 12 years because of the life cycle of our families. You may have gotten a BTO now in, let's say, Chua Chukang or Tengkang. But then a few years down the road, you're planning for the primary school of your children. Mm. Do you want your children to go to a school? Maybe you were formerly from a school that is in uh, Bukit Timah Road. Would you want your children to travel that far every day, especially the primary schoolers? So when you come to that life event, you would then consider moving for the convenience of your children. I have clients who have moved about two or three times because of the children's need. And subsequently, maybe if the child uh, is getting into Nanyang Technological University and you are staying in Sengkang, wow, that is a real long commute. So we have got to plan for some flexibility. And then today's younger graduates, they are 
probably getting into more of a gig economy where the iron rice bowl concept is no longer true and they probably will be changing jobs at least three times in their career. And so that would also mean that they have got to retain some flexibility to move around. So I would recommend that before you save up sufficient pot of money, say between the spouses, 200000 in order to buy a HDB flat that is $400,000, before they have got that level of savings, rent first, wisely invest the money as well as let the CPF money compound and then plan for the next stage of your life. Maybe halfway you want to go overseas to do your MBA, then you have got to still foot your mortgage in Singapore while you're overseas doing your master's. Mm-hmm. So many things to think about. Yeah, certainly a holistic view uh, is necessary here. Now, so yeah, although you've done the sums and there is a case for just renting instead of buying, yeah, based on what you've told us. Yeah. I know just from talking to people that the mindset among Singaporeans about renting versus buying is very, very skewed towards buying. You know, there's a big store that has been put on home ownership over the years, like over the generations. My parents' generation, for example. What's your sense of whether or not that mindset is less entrenched now, whether it's changing, and whether people are more going to be more willing to move towards that rental phase instead? I would say that it is changing, but at a really snail's pace. Um, In the past five years, when I've been uh, doing some adjunct teaching in the university, I've seen several batches of students graduate, and then some of them would come to me to ask for financial advice, for example, how should they plan? Uh, The mindset is really entrenched. We have been, I would use a negative word, say, brainwashed into thinking that ownership is the only way to go. And then there are people who fervently say that if you love Singapore uh, for the sake of the country, you should plant your roots here. And ownership is the way to demonstrate it. I mean, this is a global world. And if you are, on the one hand, encouraging us to be global talents, we need to be nimble. And so getting a mortgage when you're 28 years old and signing off a 25 years loan, I would guess that the millennials today, as well as Generation Z, they are starting to consider that flexibility might be a good thing. After all, my parents already own something. They can will it to me in future. And so why within the entire family is our family's investment portfolio skewed towards 95% real estate and only 5% of cash and CPF? So more people are starting to see the light, but I, I don't think that's enough to make a, make a shift in uh, society yet. Let's think about Switzerland or Japan and the developed nations. US, Australia, Japan, they are at about 60, 65% home ownership. Switzerland is very low. Together with Germany, I think they are between 45, 50% home ownership. And look at their SME sector. Look at their entrepreneurship. They're creating new things because they don't have a pot of money stuck in real estate and they are using their extra cash to build businesses. And as Mm. a developed country, we are at 90% home ownership and trying to push for 100% home ownership. So I think we are sort of getting our formulas slightly wrong somewhere. Okay, okay. So Young, let's tread very carefully with this next question because it's a fine trouble type of question. (laughs) <laughs> Which is it more in the interest of the Singapore economy 
for 100% home ownership or close to 100% home rental in the interest of the national economy? Hmm. Okay. I would say that there will always be a fraction of people who do not want to own because they are they don't want to be encumbered as well as maybe they have got a more free-spirited mindset that, hey, if I am a high-flying consultant, maybe I can take two years off to go around the world for travel. And so I don't want to be bogged down with long-term commitment in terms of a loan. There are also low-income families, and this was debated recently in Parliament, there are low-income families, families that probably making less than $2,000 of income as a family per month, and they are supporting three to four people in the household. And these people, if we encourage them to own something, if they have a job loss somewhere due to bad health, they are still settled with a mortgage that they have to pay for the next 15 years. So we need to offer sufficient types to to cater for the needs and the wishes of different segments of society. So I say to go for 100% ownership is wrong. To encourage 100% rentals is also wrong. We need to have a pot of products that would be able to cater to different people in different stages of their life and their wealth and income. Mm, okay, so taking a very balanced, holistic approach here, good. So, Young, there's something else that's been making headlines, the prime location public housing model. We just heard, and it's in on the front page of today's paper as well, that 960 units in Rocho are up for sale. And, of course... There is also the announcement that the quantum of the subsidy clawback upon resale for these flats will be 6%. People are debating this, you know. Is the 6% fair? Will all of this be enough to prevent excessive windfall gains when owners sell their flat on the open market? The whole idea was to temper the lottery effect, right? What do you think? I would say that if we start to couple the word stock market and lottery with the term public housing, then I think we have agreed to forego this concept of affordability. Mm. Public housing subsidized by taxpayers should be affordable to the bottom 80%, meaning let's leave the top 20% income earners out of the equation. We should look at the median income of the bottom 80%. And if that median income for the household is, say, $7,000 a month, let's work around that budget to make sure that these people can all afford and let's not tie them down with 20, 25 years of mortgages. One point about this Rocho uh, new cluster, it is actually not on that plot of land that the colourful Rocho flats uh, was sitting on. It is actually slightly further away at Jalan Besar MRT station near Kelantan Road, Well Road, right? So there's a bit of a misconception here now. And looking at details of the the announcement, the flats will be slightly smaller by maybe 40 square feet. Mm -hmm. And when you take a look at the average selling prices and divide by the size, they turn out to be about $570 per square foot before grants. So that's pretty high price to me. And then, of course, on the clawback, 6%. 6%. If somebody bought a flat there at $500,000 and subsequently could sell it for, say, $800,000, 
he would have to pay a callback of 6% on $800,000, the selling price. That's $48,000. But his overall gain is 300000 and we claw back 48000 His grant could have been 20000 So overall, he still makes a significant gain. And so based on this set of mathematics, I mean, just purely for financial reasons alone, I would say, yeah, go ahead and apply. But using that mentality of making a profit out mm. of a taxpayer subsidized product, I think that's the wrong mindset and it's bad for yeah. the next generation. Yeah, ministers have come out to say that the whole idea is to sort of regulate and give it a fair playing field. Uh, but we'll still have to wait at least 10 years before we can see those effects. Because Sui Young, Chief Investment Officer for Casa Singapore on the line with us. Sui Young, as always, we appreciate your time. You take care and stay safe. Thank you very much. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.